What's up, lacrosse fans, and welcome back to another edition of the Off the Crossbar podcast. This week, we talk the dangerous one, unknown penalty shots. Jones has been traded. The trade deadline is coming. And what the heck was Simon Fraser doing with the starters in the game in the fourth quarter? All that and more on OTCB. I am an outlaw. It was a quiet week in week 10 in the National Lacrosse League. Only three games were played, and they all were quite entertaining. Hopefully, this show will be as entertaining. No guests this week, so you're just going to have to listen to the sultry tones of myself. And who am I? I am Teddy Jenner, and I am your host, and I really appreciate you stopping by. If you want to get a hold of me at the show, you can. Uh, you can email me. Teddy.Jenner at gmail.com or you can find me on that old Twitter box at Off the Crossbar. As mentioned, it was a quiet week, only three games, uh, but they were all entertaining lacrosse games. Rochester beats Calgary 9-8 in overtime thanks to the heroics of Dan Dawson. Colorado outlasts New England 14-13 thanks to that guy Adam Jones who has gone for back-to-back Sock tricks again. And then Buffalo kind of eased off the gas pedal a bit late in their game against Vancouver and ended up knocking off the stealth 13-18 as Dane Smith keeps up with his stats of averaging around eight points or more a game, and he did just that. We're going to talk about some of those things and a few of those things. We're going to talk about some other things as well. So let's start our show in the Mile High City, where Adam Jones was on the verge of setting a national lacrosse league record as he would score a first goal early in that game to make it 56 straight regular season games, surpassing his teammate John Grant Jr. for the record. Now, there are some people who will mm, take argument with the record, I guess you could say. Um, It is regular season games, and Jones has missed regular season games, but you can't score if you don't play, so the streak still stays intact. Um, He didn't score in Colorado's playoff game last year, so some people might want to put an asterisk on it that it's not straight games and just regular season games, but the Mammoth never said it wasn't anything other than the regular season, so all you naysayers... Go back into your caves. Okay? Just, why can't we have records? And why can't they be good records? And this is one of the good records. 56 straight games. I don't even think I played that many games in my career. And Jones has scored 56 straight games. Now, he probably could have had more in that game. He finished with seven goals and one assist. One shot I know he would love to have back was when he got a penalty shot with the Mammoth up 5-3 in the second quarter, just over 10 and a half minutes left in the game, and Joey Cupido does what he does best. Here's Crowley, far side for Evans. Back to Crowley. Thought about the shot, now it's intercepted. Joey Cupido, they have wide open spaces. Here he goes! Save made by Kirk and a dandy. 
Yeah, New England left early there. They're going to get a too many men penalty. Well, they had to. You weren't going to catch Joey Capito otherwise. He's one of the fastest guys in the game, not just on, on the Mammoth. So I, I wasn't watching the Colorado game as I was doing some prep work for the Vancouver Buffalo game. And I got a couple texts from a few people, most notably Ryan McMichael, and said, what the heck was the penalty shot for? And obviously I didn't see it. So uh, I had to wait until the replay was made available to the media and finally went back and watched it. And the ruling is a clear ruling. It's in the NL NLL rulebook, and it's rule 43.7. And 43.7 is illegally entering the game and interfering with the ball carrier on a breakaway. And it reads, If a player on a breakaway shall be interfered with by the player of the opposing side who has illegally entered the game, the referee shall impose a penalty shot against the side to which the opposing player belongs. Interferred, interfered, as per this rule, does not imply physical contact by the defender. So, that, you know, is a pretty big gray area. When you think about it, because first off, it was very close to being too many men. I paused it a couple times as the defender leaves early and the forward getting off the floor is like a stride and a half away from the player's box. Very minuscule. If they wouldn't have called a penalty, the guy wasn't catching Capito anyway. If the guy had left two seconds earlier, he probably wasn't going to catch Capito. Now, the bigger question is, was he actually interfered with? Now, as I just read, the rule states that interference doesn't officially mean or essentially mean body contact. And so I went back and looked again. And it's and I believe it's Andrew Suter. And by the way, Suits, for a guy who's had two knee surgeries and was playing in his first game, played pretty damn well, my buddy. And that's a lot of speed to almost catch Joey Capito. I digress. So, did Suter actually interfere with Joey Capito in a way that he wasn't able to get a shot off on that breakaway? In my opinion, Suits waves his stick at Capito, but doesn't touch him. And I don't really think the waving of those stick is would be even considered interference because Capito got a clean shot away. So it's another one of those gray areas that we have to kind of go by the ref's discretion. And the referees, the trail ref, I believe, was the one who made the too many men call. They would have conferred and said, hey, you know, okay, they got too many men. It was a breakaway. Did he interfere with them? And they must have come to the conclusion that he did resulting in Suter getting a two-minute unsportsmanlike conduct penalty for having some not-so-friendly words for the referee. And my guess was, he was probably saying, I never touched him. And I don't think he did. But, there we go. So for all of you that were wondering why Adam Jones was out there taking the penalty shot, that is the answer why. And just for all of you what may be wondering at home, there are seven ways that you can get a penalty shot in the National Lacrosse League. The rule is Rule 43, and the seven subcategories are two men down and an additional penalty to a third player. So if a team has two guys in the box and they get a third penalty, you can't play five on two or whatever it may be. So 
instead of a third penalty, you get a penalty shot. Second way is if you get a too-many-men call in the final two minutes of the game. Uh, that's for Rule 43.2. That's a penalty shot. Uh, throwing the stick, um, that's obviously a penalty shot, but there's little definitions when any member of the defending team, including anyone on the bench, deliberately throws or shoots any part of a stick or any other object at the ball or ball carrier on a breakaway. That's a penalty shot. Uh, crease violation. This is one you don't see that gets called too often. Uh, should a player in his own end deliberately fall on the ball in his crease in front of the goal line or deliberately close his hand on the ball in the crease in front of his goal line, a penalty shot will be awarded. You see that all the time in hockey, uh, but you don't see it too often in lacrosse. Uh, 43.5 fouled from behind when a player on a breakaway is tripped or otherwise fouled from behind a penalty shot shall be awarded. And then 43.6 intentional displacement of the goal on a breakaway. If the goal post is deliberately displaced by a goalie or player during the course of a breakaway, a penalty shot will be awarded. And of course the rule we've just discussed, rule 43.7 illegally entering the floor and interfering with a player on a breakaway. So there you go. If you've ever been wondering, how does my team get a penalty shot? There's the seven ways. And that's been another edition of opening the NLL rulebook with me. Now let's move on, because there were some other things that were going around uh, the National Lacrosse League this week, and we talked about Jones and his heroics, and we've also kind of touched on Dane Smith, and I had a great opportunity uh, to watch Dane Smith up close and personal this past weekend as I joined the legend John Gertler on the Buffalo radio call. And I always have a fun time with Gertz. He's um, an absolute legend in the broadcasting game. He has stories that go beyond my days. And he's just a pro's pro. Uh, calls the games really well. He, he gets excited and he has his moments of kind of stumbles and bumbles. But we all do that. I do it here in the radio studio. I do it when I call games as well. But he, he's so well prepared. Um, he's gained an incredible rapport around the league, and the guys just really enjoy talking with Gertler. Um, as I said, he just has a great relationship with everybody, so I was really happy um, to be able to join him on the, the uh, Buffalo radio call. And so I got to watch Dane Smith, and I've seen Dane Smith play before uh, when he was with the Shamrocks, and I've seen him whenever Buffalo's come to Vancouver, but his game has just evolved so well in the past few years. And one of the cool stories about Dane Smith is that when he first came into the league, he wasn't an O guy. He was a straight tranny D guy. And it's very similar to the course that Mitch Jones is on. Mitch Jones was a talented junior A lacrosse player with, uh, I believe he set a Minto Cup record. I can't remember off the top of my head uh, what the points was. It might have been 10 points in a game or somewhere around there. But Mitch Jones is a phenomenal, phenomenal lacrosse talent. And he's found himself in Buffalo with a team that is very heavily stacked offensively, but he's such a gifted athlete that Troy Cordley can't afford to have him in the stands every night. So they run him out the back end, play him on D, let him push the floor with his speed and athletic ability, and if he has to or can, stay and play. That's the same career path that Dane Smith took. Bandit fans will remember in his early days, Dane was a transition guy, and everyone thought, oh, man, this is going to be the next great two-way NLL transition guy. Well, 
over the past couple seasons. He's evolved into a straight offensive guy. And Troy Cordingly now has space for him and an obvious desire to run him as much as he can out the front door. They don't need him as much out the back door. And Dane's game has just grown and flourished in Buffalo. But what makes Dane so good is not just his speed and quickness, but it's his ability to shoot the ball from any angle. And if you watch, um, he can go inside and outside. He can go topside. He can go underneath. He can bowl right through you, or he can break your ankles and put you on a highlight reel. And he is—he does that every week. Game in, game out. That's how Dane Smith scores. But the ability to do that little shimmy shake that he does and shoot a shot like is released from his knees, like by his knees. That's where he's releasing the ball. But goalies don't expect you to shoot from that angle. Like, that's not a traditional shooting angle. And it confuses and gives goalies so many issues because not only is it coming from low to low, but it's like a foot and a half, two feet off the ground. It can go far side at your knees. It can go short side at your knees, five hole, wherever he wants to go. And that's just like he does when he shoots overhand. His release is so quick that goalies aren't able to get set. Again, far side, short side, high to low, low to high, high to high, low to low. He literally has it all. And he's continuing to impress. He had eight points again, five goals, three assists against the Vancouver Stealth as Buffalo continues to lead the East. Oh, sorry, New England is, Buffalo and New England are tied at the top of the East. New England is 5-3, and three, Buffalo 6-4. and four. New England has two games in hand in Buffalo, so New England sits at top of the standings. But Dane Smith is leading the National Lacrosse League in scoring. He's got a 19-point lead on Callum Crawford. Um, I talked about, is it possible for Dane Smith to win the Triple Crown in my 30 thoughts last week? And he's still on pace to do it. However, he's going to be in a run for his money for the assist category, or the assist third of the Triple Crown as Callum Crawford has now taken over the lead in assist as he has a one-assist lead, 47-46. to 46. But Dane is on pace to smash the record books, blow things out of the water. And he just, there's no stopping him. And the great thing about Dane Smith is if defenses make adjustments to limit his shots and limit his ability to score goals, he can pass with the best of them. Uh, Stamper mentioned it in his Players of the Week. Um, one of his favorite plays from Dane Smith wasn't a goal, but was a seeing-eye pass that he made from you know uh, east to west through the trees, as I think he put it, to a cutting Daryl Veltman who beat the Vancouver goaltender. And it's things like that that when you are more than one-dimensional, it just makes you that much more scary on the lacrosse floor. And, you know, you look at the top five guys in the National Lacrosse League scoring, Dane Smith, Callum Crawford, Sean Evans, Logan Schuss, and Adam Jones. You know, all five of those guys' ha games have evolved over the years. And Dane Smith's trajectory is so high. And the fact that he's like 23, 24 years old is incredible to see the potential that Dane Smith has.
Uh, one other note, or two other notes I want to talk about from that Vancouver game. Um, I, I haven't had a chance to talk with anybody from Vancouver this week, um, but I still don't know why they started Eric Penny. Uh, Tyler Richards had been giving them pretty solid minutes their last couple games, and you know he was getting back to the old T-Rich, and it was a head-scratcher when I saw the starting lineups. Uh, at the LEC this weekend, and to see Eric Penny get that start, I get it. Maybe, you know, Vancouver's still trying to show Penny that they have faith in him and that he's their guy. But he let in four goals on seven shots and was yanked early and never saw the floor again. And it it just confuses me some of the decisions that this Vancouver stealth coaching staff and management staff makes. Um, in my opinion... They should be riding Tyler Richards if they hope to get back into this. Um, you know, they're in a playoff spot currently. They're third, Calgary's fourth. But if they're going to want to stay in that position, in my professional opinion, and it may not be worth a grain of salt, but Tyler Richards has gotten you to the big dance before. You might as well see how healthy and how good he really is and let him run with it. I think the defense plays a little more confident in front of Tyler Richards. They can be a little more aggressive because they know not every soft shot is going to get in. And it was just another head-scratcher for me, for this Vancouver coaching staff. And, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure how much longer Dan Perot has a job in this league. Um, Vancouver is struggling I, I know they have a lot of faith in Doug, just like they have a lot, or sorry, in Dan Pro, just like they have faith in Eric Penny. But, you know, for me, Pro couldn't get the job done in junior with the new Westminster Junior Salmon Bellies, and he's not getting the job done with the Vancouver Stealth. Um, you know, Eric Penny had an incredible year with the new Westminster Senior Salmon Bellies, was co rookie of the year was goalie of the year and MVP. And it's weird to see him have that much success in the summer and not have it in the winter. But it just goes back to one of those weird anomalies that we see in professional lacrosse. A guy can be an incredible summer ball player, but his game just doesn't transfer to the National Lacrosse League. And Eric Penny just might be one of those guys. So... You know, Vancouver has a huge game this weekend. It's crazy to think that, you know, Calgary and Vancouver are 3-4 right now, and they're battling for that third playoff spot. Well, they both play Toronto this weekend in Toronto. Calgary's there Friday, and then Toronto gets a day off before they play Vancouver on Sunday. And I don't know. It's, it's going to be interesting to see how the West plays out. Uh, in the final two-thirds of the regular season because it appears Saskatchewan and Colorado, 1-2, they're going to be up there, you know, for the foreseeable future. But it's Vancouver and Calgary that need to do the most work. Um, Calgary started Mike Poulin this past weekend, and he played valuable minutes. And Kurt Miloski thought it was time to give Poulin a, a shot at being the starter, and he played really well. Um he only let in nine goals. And I think that they might run Poulin again in Toronto this weekend. If I'm Vancouver, I put Tyler Richards in net. 
I put Thomas Hogarth back in the lineup along with like him and Ryan Wagner running the floor was going to be great to see. And I think they should allow those two young guys to run the floor a bit more. Look what Jordan Durson's doing with all the confidence they put him in the offense. And they've allowed him to flourish and play. And it, it was another head scratcher when I saw Hogarth out of the lineup just as much as it was a head scratcher that I saw Penny starting. So it'll be interesting to see what this Vancouver team does. Uh, I talked to some guys after the game. That pressure of winning at home isn't there anymore. Um, they kind of nipped that in the butt um, a few weeks ago because it was there. Uh, I've had numerous players on that team told me that words were said, we have to win at home, paraphrasing. But you can't put that on a team like that. Like, that's just unfair. So with that gone, that pressure lifted off their shoulders. Guys should be able to play a little more freely. But it just seems like some guys are looking over their shoulders because they don't know if they're going to be in one week and out the next. And, and it's causing some issues with that group. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a locker fan. I like Doug. Um, but if this team doesn't make the playoffs, I don't understand. I don't understand if the Stealth don't make the playoffs, how he can still have a job. How Dan Perot can still have a job. I'm just speaking honesties here. Because that's what we do. But after if, if they don't make the playoffs this year, that'll be three years in Langley without the postseason, with no signs of upward trending, with no picks until like 2020. First round picks, that is. Something will have to change. And if it doesn't, maybe the change is the venue. Maybe the change is the city. Maybe the change is just a complete blow-up and trade everybody, get as many picks as you can for everybody, and then just draft a brand-new team. That's a little far-fetched. But if, from a business standpoint, if you are losing and losing and losing and not making the playoffs, change has to be made. I'm an Oilers fan. They're terrible. And after years of futility, they fire their coach, they fire their GM. They try it again. More futility. They fire their coach, they fire their GM. You keep doing it until you find somebody that's going to get the job done. And Locker has done great work in the past for this club. He built a championship-winning team along with Chris Hall back in 2010. They went to... Three straight NLL championships games. They lost two of three. They could have won two of three or three of three, but they only won one of three. And now they're on the verge. Again, a little ways to go here in the season. And we're not writing anybody off, but they're on the verge of possibly missing the playoffs for the third straight year in a market they thought was going to be gangbusters and sell out and everyone was going to flock to the LEC. It's not happening. So we'll just have to, you know, keep that one on the back burner right now. But, you know, there's already people out there calling for the heads of Locker and of Dan Perot. 
And I don't know what this club does. I don't know who's going to make that decision. I don't know if it's going to be Denise Watkins or if it's going to be Dave Takata. But someone is going to eventually have to realize that the people who are building this team and organizing this team and running this team just aren't getting the job done. Business sense. Put people in place to get the job done. If they're not getting the job done, then you move on. Uh, One more thing about that Vancouver game, and it was a spark that I didn't see a couple weeks ago, and I am extremely happy to see Matt Beers step up and fight Steve Priolo in a great, great tilt. Third corner action is underway. Let's place them across, and here we go right off the get-go. Matt Beers and Steve Priolo tie up, and they're ready to go. Beers with a couple of quick jabs. Priolo missed with a haymaker. And Priolo over the top again, he's missing. Beers standing right in there, and he takes down Priolo with a shot and lands right on top of him. Maybe that will spark up this crowd for the second half. Now, throughout the game, it had been quite chippy. There were moments where I thought things might set off. Um, The stick work was active. Guys were taking liberties with guys late after the whistle, near the benches. Um, It literally could have blown way out of proportion. But this fight happened right at the start of the third quarter. And, you know, there was a couple incidences after that. Priolo again got involved with Logan Schuss this time, who, as Logan put it, soaked a couple to the face. But it it, it needed to get done because it just allowed the tension to just float away. And it got all the extra stuff out of the way, and the guy settled it. But what I loved about it, and this is sort of the code sort of thing, is that the I didn't see the original discussion between the two as I just kind of was paying attention to the face-off. But it's not like they just, like, dropped everything and went right at it right away. They said, you want to go? Yep, we're going to go. Okay. Whistle blew. Wisely, they waited for the whistle because if they did that before the whistle started, they both would have been kicked out of the game. But they So they wait for the whistle. And then they say, yep, okay, we're going. And they take their chin straps off. And what I loved was that they both waited. Like, I think Priolo struggled with getting his chin strap on done. And while that could have happened, he could have popped beers a couple times. But he didn't. And beers probably could have popped Priolo a couple times because Priolo's hands were kind of distracted and beers had his hand free. But they waited. They each grabbed inside the collar. Allowed each guy to get a handhold. It's like, you know, arm wrestling. You wait till the guys are ready. And then they went and had a spirited scrap. And Beers got the upper hand, the right. It was kind of like a glancing upper hook, but it did catch Priolo a bit on the button and sent the big guy down. But it was a great little tilt. And, you know, it kind of sparked Vancouver a little bit as they had a bit of a better jump in the second half. But it's little things like that that, You know, people say fighting has no place in the cross. Well, sometimes it does. Like, things were getting out of control. And if you allow the guys to police themselves, then all that extra stuff just goes away. 
later on in the game, uh, an incident happened that Priolo got involved, as I kind of talked about, with Shus. But, again, the guy settled it right there, and we never saw anything after that. So, good on Beers and good on Priolo for stepping up. Heck, good on Logie Shus for stepping in and, and wearing a few from Priolo. But things like that can help turn the tides in games, and for Vancouver, it didn't quite work. But, you know, Beers was trying to spark his team. So good on him. Priolo, one of the nicest guys uh, I've ever met. Um, so is Matt Beers, just two class guys. Uh, both are firefighters. I know Priolo's trying to get on the firefighters back east, so uh, he was super clean shaven. I was kind of bugging about that before the game. But, uh, you know, when guys want to go toe-to-toe, I'm cool with it. And, you know, it wasn't a staged fight per se, but you know what? They needed to settle things, and they settled things. So good on them. Um, so we'll, we'll leave that game for now. I had some conversations with uh, some of the Buffalo coaching staff uh, before the game. I was catching up with Kevin Alexander, and it's great to see those guys, old Buffalo guys, reminiscing about their olden days and spandex shorts and things like that. But we'll save those stories uh, for 30 Thoughts this week on, on IL Indoor. So make sure you check that out. Um, the only game we haven't touched on was the Rochester-Calgary game. Let's fast forward right to late in the fourth quarter, Calgary gets a power play with under two minutes to go and a great opportunity to break the snide that they had been on. Um, and more importantly, avoid overtime. But they weren't able to beat Matt Vince. They go to overtime. They still had some time left on the power play in overtime. Were unable to score there. And that set up the dramatics of Dan Dawson as Rochester got back to even strength. Dawson to Resseteritz, back up high to Dawson. Dawson now tries to get around the defender, does to the net, shoots and scores! Dan Dawson with a beautiful goal. It's heartbreak for the Roughnecks as Rochester takes it 9-8 in overtime. The thing with Dan Dawson is that he'd already scored a goal very similar to that earlier in the game. And he saw the matchup that he wanted. He had Rezateritz down low, who was deed up against Greg Harnett. He gets the ball to Dawson, who's deed up by John Harnett, and goes one-on-one. Rezateritz is trying to set a bit of a, a underneath seal pick, but Harnett does an excellent job, Greg Harnett, does an excellent job of getting Rezateritz out of the way. And they kind of cut through the crease, cut in front of Mike Poulin, and Reza Terrace does the smart thing, gets himself out of the crease as Dawson gets underneath. I'm pretty sure John Harnett was expecting underneath D help, but it wasn't there. And Dawson was able to use his 6-6 albatross frame and dunked it over the far left shoulder of Mike Poulin for Calgary's third straight overtime loss. And just more heartbreak for Kurt Miloski and his charges, who... You know, they've been in this situation. How many times have we talked about Calgary and one-goal games? Like, it's something that truly haunts this franchise. And this year is no different. 
has mentioned, three overtime games. They've been in a 9-8 win over New England. They've been in a 10-9 loss to Buffalo. They were in a two-goal game uh, against Saskatchewan to start the year. They beat Georgia 12-11. Like, they beat Vancouver 15-13. Like, these one two-goal games are nightmares for Calgary. Eight of their ten games this year have been decided by one or two goals. Wins and losses, either side. But that's just got to be so nerve-wracking. And, you know, gray hair city in Calgary. Because it's just got to be so stressful to be putting yourselves emotionally, physically, through that kind of pressure. It's just unthinkable to see and to imagine what is going on in Calgary. Like last year they were 0-6 and they were plagued by one goal games as well. And this year they got off to a bit of a better bit of a better start. And, you know, they're three and seven right now. If you take those three overtime wins and turn or three overtime losses and turn the wins, they're six and four. And Next thing you know, they're second in the West. But it's just the way the National Lacrosse League is. And it's not easy. And it's stressful, man. And, you know, I, I talk about, you know, Dan Perot not getting it done for Vancouver. And I don't know if you can, can blame Kurt Miloski as much because when he gets overtime, you know, anything can happen. And they're doing, you know, they're still without Dane Doby, who they really hope to have back soon. But how long does Kurt Miloski have in Calgary if, if things keep going this way? I know they signed him to a contract extension, I think, last year. But sometimes, like I said, if, the, if guys aren't getting the job done, how do you stick with that? I'm a huge Kurt Miloski fan, and I would bring him in to coach my team any chance I could because he's such a student of the game. But sometimes, sometimes change is needed. I don't, I don't think Calgary needs to make a change um, as badly as I think Vancouver needs to make a change. Uh, if Calgary gets Dane Doby back, I think, you know, if they had Dane Doby in those three overtime losses, I, I don't think they lose those games. Maybe one of them. If they can get Dane Doby back and, you know, they can play the way they've been playing, minus giving up late leads and things like that, I don't think Calgary's in as much trouble as I think Vancouver is. And I don't think Calgary is in as much trouble as Toronto is. I think Toronto and Vancouver are two clubs that, you know, come this offseason will have to do some serious, serious tinkering. Uh, but it's interesting to see that play out in that sort of the three hotbeds of lacrosse in Canada, BC, Alberta, and Toronto, those pro teams are the teams that unfortunately are doing the worst this year. And I'm not sure why that is, but it's just an interesting thing to notice when you look at the standings. You know, New England's not a traditional market there at the top. Colorado wasn't a traditional market. It's still not a really traditional market, but they're at the top. Buffalo's been around for decades, and, and they're at the top. But again, not a real traditional lacrosse market. They just have been around long enough. 
But when you look at Toronto, Calgary, Vancouver struggling, it's just a head-scratcher. You know, those are, are markets that should be succeeding. Um, you know, Calgary's succeeding um, off the floor. But that's about it. So we'll have to keep an eye on everything that goes around um, with all of those three teams. Uh, because, you know, those are three markets that need to be successful um, for the stability of this league, especially in Canada. Like, Saskatchewan's not a lacrosse market, a hotbed. They have lacrosse there, but it's still pretty grassroots. And they have the best attendance, sorry, the second best attendance, of the Canadian teams. Calgary's the first, just over, just under 11,000. Saskatchewan just has under 10,000. Toronto's just behind Saskatchewan. And then all the way down the bottom is Vancouver, averaging just under 4,000. And for everybody that says, oh, you know, Canada is the lock in the strong part of the National Lacrosse League, and we need a national TV deal in Canada to keep this league alive. Well, you're not going to get a national TV deal when three of your four markets are pulling in under 10,000 fans. It's not going to happen. Uh, moving on. Uh, I mentioned uh, Jones was traded. Well, it's Mitch Jones. Um, and he wasn't traded in the National Cross League, obviously. Uh, he was traded from the Victoria Shamrocks to the New Westminster Salmonbellies. For a fourth-round pick next year, a second-round pick the year after that, and I think a fifth-round pick in the year after that. Um, and this was a trade that really was a, like another thing that just boggled my mind. Um, Jones is one of the best athletes in lacrosse. He was a huge part of their Man Cup run. Um, he's proven himself to be valuable with the Buffalo Bandits and just continuing getting better now that he's finished his schooling at Northern Michigan and he's a full-time lacrosse player now. He's become one of the best two-way guys in the game. But apparently there were some other extenuating issues off the floor uh, between Jones and Shamrock management and Shamrock coaching staff that didn't quite gel and mold together. And because of it, uh, GM Chris Welch decided to pull the trigger, and he made the deal with New Westminster for three picks in exchange for Mitch Jones. And when I talked to Welch, he was like, you know, we originally got Mitch Jones as a free agent for free. We may not be getting fair market value for him, but since we got him for nothing and we get three picks back, maybe it's a win. And maybe it is a win. Um, Jones wasn't going to live on the island. He's a, a Vancouver guy, um, so it keeps him a little bit closer to home. And, you know, Victoria gets three picks that they didn't have. But we'll see. You know, I, I've heard some issues, and it's not my place to, to kind of talk about some of these things because I don't know the full extent of them all. But um, as I said, there were some off-floor issues involving Jones and some Shamrocks um, front office staff and the coaching staff that needed to be resolved. And some of them were and some of them weren't. And so the team decided that the best course of action was to, to deal Mitch Jones. Um, some feel that they might have panicked and pulled the trigger too soon. And, again, maybe not get as much as they could for him. But they felt they need to make the deal and get it done, and they did. 
So uh, that's WLA News. Um, some Senior B news that kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, the Senior B St. Catharines Saints have folded uh, a year after hosting the President's Cup. Uh, came of a bit of a shock to everybody. Uh, no real reason given for the termination of the club. It doesn't look like they've put a suspend on, like a suspend hold on the team. Um, it looks like they've just completely pulled the plug on it. Uh, it could be that they didn't um, foresee all the expenses that it would cost to host a President's Cup um, and bringing in players and everything that went along with that. So they could have been you know, deep in the red. Um, but it's never good when you see a team fold. It's never good in the National Lacrosse League. It's never good in Senior B. So uh, unfortunate to see that uh, happen for the St. Catherine Saints. Uh, like I said, who meant were President Cup hosts last year and a year later are no more. National Lacrosse League trade deadline is March 29th. Uh, that is just... 21 days away, so three weeks from today is the National Lacrosse League trade deadline. Rosters have to be finalized by the 31st. Now, what that means is that um, you can sign free agents and non-rostered players to your team. Um, so if deals are going to get done, they might start to slowly percolate through the wires in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we'll have to wait and see how that unfolds. Folds. Uh, two things before we get out of here. One, games this weekend. We've kind of touched on them a little bit. Um, week 11 kicks off on Friday with Rochester at Buffalo, the first meeting between those two clubs this year. And then, as I mentioned, Calgary is at Toronto. Saturday, New England takes on Rochester, so Rochester has to do the back-to-back. And then also on Saturday, Georgia will host Saskatchewan, and the two relocated teams will converge for the first time this year. And then Saturday, sort of the quote-unquote marquee game because it's the one that's on national television here in Canada on TSN2. Vancouver is at Toronto. The other four games are all on the Fox Sports Go network. And then Vancouver at Toronto is on TSN2. Now, a story that I still don't have the full details because I haven't been able to reach anybody from Simon Fraser University yet. But the story came out um, yesterday that Simon Fraser beat Washington State University in Pacific Northwest Lacrosse League, P-N-A-A-L-L, I think that's what it's called. Um, it's their college division or conference. Um, and Simon Fraser beat Washington State, hold on to your hats for this one, 45 nothing. I'm going to let that sink in for a minute. A college lacrosse game, four quarters, and you scored 45 on the other team. Making it worse, from reports that I've seen and through the elaborate Twitter tweets that Simon Fraser was sending out after almost every goal, they had their starters in. Deep into the fourth quarter, if not the whole game. And there are reports that um, some of the Washington State guys were out drinking the night before. There are reports that Washington State didn't have a coach on the sideline for the game. But how do you, like, consciously and humanely 
continue to run up the score on a team like that. Like, everybody in that program should be embarrassed. How, as a coach, do you not say, hey, guys, let's work some systems here. Try running some plays. And you don't have to do it in um, a demeaning form. Like, okay, guys, everybody put the stick in your wrong hand. D guys play attack. Attack guys, you're on defense. And attack, your or midfielders, you're whatever. Like, you don't have to do that. But you know what? Okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. First time out on the field, you know, when they're up 24 nothing at half or whatever the heck it was. Okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. Every possession, we're going to wheel the ball around a couple times, and we're going to run two offensive sets before we even go to the net. You're not shooting from way out. You're not shooting from in tight. If you have a clear shot, you can take it. But we're going to work some things. We're going to try some plays. We're going to run our offense. But you don't hold up the green light sign and say, all right, guys, fire at will. That does nothing to help the game grow. And I couldn't believe it. It's created some minor outraging rumblings throughout the lacrosse world, especially out here in BC, of people just blown away that Brent Hoskins, the, the head coach of Simon Fraser, would allow that to happen. Like, it just makes no sense. 45 nothing. There's just no words for that. Like, mind blown. I don't know how you even do that as a coach. Like, I've coached minor teams that have been head and shoulders above whoever they were playing. And I was even reprimanded by the provincial association saying, you got to stop running the score up. When we weren't even running the score up and we were beating teams by like 10 goals. Who's going to go to Simon Fraser and say, what the hell are you guys doing? Scoring 45 goals. What does that prove? Nothing. All it does is make your team look like a bunch of asses and make me lose respect for a lot of people in that organization. Bill Tierney, one of the greatest lacrosse coaches ever in the NCAA, would never for the most part, would never let his team score more than 19 if they didn't have to. And yet Simon Fraser puts up 45 on Washington State. Classless. Embarrassing. And just all things wrong. You don't see it very often. And I hope I never see it again. I'm going to stick to watching the National Lacrosse League, Canadian Summer Ball, and really, really good NCAA lacrosse because that's where it's at. But a league where teams consciously put up 45 goals, I got no time for that. No time at all. Uh, my name is Teddy Jenner. This has been another edition of the Off the Crossbar podcast. You can find me on Twitter at off the crossbar and please email me love to hear from y'all teddy.jenner at gmail.com another week is in the books Uh, I will be back next week for another edition of OTCB check out my Thursday 
30-second shot clock on ilindoor.com. Watch for a great little article I did um, on Dylan Evans for the PLPA of the Rochester Nighthawks, so that one will be posted very shortly. And until then, enjoy the games, everybody. Be excellent to each other.